Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. If you, like us, consider it an absolute disgrace that FIFA would put two World Cup rest days back to back, then you've come to the right place because we here at the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast will rest for no man, not even Seth Blatter. We're bombarding you with World Cup chat today, both in our later show with Ken from Brazil and in this programme where US Murph will gauge what sort of impact the heroics against Belgium have had on football in his country. Certainly the top man was impressed. Murph Barack Obama put in a call, a slightly cringeworthy call to Tim Howard and Tim Dempsey. Yeah. I, w- I would call it a slightly cringeworthy call. Um, the amount of times Barack Obama said the word folks surprisingly low on this particular occasion so that's good I think there was only one uh, you know anytime you ever hear Barack Obama all he's ever talking about is the folks right, yeah. which annoys the hell out of me but uh, yeah no I mean it was it was there wasn't much coming back his direction I would say no, he was I, talking I a lot about how great they were and they were exactly probably slightly that, nervous yeah. Th- thanks big guy yeah I, know, I, I would have said you know why not Throw in a question or two, Tim Howard, Clint Dempsey, and you know, take some of the pressure off the big guy. Because you know when you're on a, a call with someone, I have a couple of friends who are just terrible on the phone. Don't, they don't ever want to talk on the phone. So it's like, okay, will we meet there? Yeah. Okay, so what, what, what time? What time suits you? Well, they're Irish men. Or, I mean, it's not a strength well, of ours. No, well, I mean, it's just basic manners to ha- give something back to the person that you're on the phone to. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe Tim Howard and Clint Dempsey are a little like that, you know? Maybe they, maybe they just don't like talking on the phone. When they meet Barack Obama, there'll be a barrel of laughs. But just over the phone, not for me. I was listening to Bill Simmons on his BS report and he was making the point that the sport is at an interesting and quite a positive place at the moment in the country in terms of how it's analysed. Everybody's hugely enthusiastic about it, but there's still just enough naivety mm. that players don't get crushed by the media when they do something wrong. For example, the uh, Wondolowski, the player, missed an easy chance, not getting particularly hammered. Michael Bradley was one of their main men. It should have been, but didn't have a good tournament. People are willing to let him have a free pass. And the point was raised that maybe 
football would have 100% arrived when guys who make mistakes in World Cup are destroyed and their lives are ruined. Well, that's something for them to look forward to. Yeah. Something for them to fight towards. So it's a, nice, uh, it a nice piece. One of our favourite sports people, Dervil O'Rourke, announced her retirement last Monday, uh, 10 days ago. We were in here when it happened. And I was certainly very surprised about it. She had battled back from Achilles surgery. She'd been aiming for the European Championships in Zurich but came to the re- realisation she wasn't going to be in medal contention in that championships. A line in her statement struck a lot of people, I think. She said, going to a championships just to be there isn't me. Now, I, mean, I understand all of that, but then I'm, where I'm really interested is how she went from that realisation to deciding to call it a day altogether. She hasn't given any interviews since the announcement, but uh, is popping into us very shortly to have a chat. So that should be, should be really interesting. We're looking forward to that. A little later, former Kerry midfielder Michal Quirk will be on to talk Kerry Cork and Porky Cueve. Murph, you're enjoying the nostalgia around the final ever Gaelic football match in Porky Cueve until the new stadium is built. Yeah. Uh, I was there, you know, in uh, 1991 for the Munster football final. 91? Yeah. Kerry and Cork, yeah. My dad was a selector on the Galway Under-21 team at the time oh. and Galway played a challenge game against Cork in the Mardike, which is the really old ground in Cork that morning and then the whole squad went to uh, went to Kerry and Cork and Porky Creek I was actually on crutches at the time right so um, we underestimated how long the walk to Porky Creek is because basically it's all the way along the, the keys this is why it's such a terrible place to have a ground because it's just one road in one road out and it, the road's right. about a mile long yeah. so it's a total nightmare to get into and out of so I ended up being carried sh- I was on crutches but I ended up being carried shoulder high for the entire length of that walk as a nine year old uh, as a nine year old kid then we stood up on the terraces and a steward came down or came up to me and said you can't be up here on crutches so myself and my dad ended up watching the game right beside the tunnel that the players <laughs> came out right. of right on the sideline uh, and it was absolutely amazing it was absolutely brilliant like the last few of the great Kerry team were playing Spillane and Jack O'Shea and one or two others and uh, yeah I've actually funnily enough I haven't been back to Porky Creek oh no I was was in Porky Creek for a a hurling game a couple of years ago as well but uh, yeah I mean everyone says it's terrible I think it's generally accepted that nobody will you can be nostalgic about it but nobody's going to miss the facilities Uh, and also it's not as though it's a ground that's suddenly being moved miles away from where it is they're redeveloping it so therefore there shouldn't be too much sadness attached I don't, I don't know but we'll talk to Michal Quirk in a little while about the game itself as well to, because particularly interesting team selections from both sides for that one actually assuming they are the teams that will line out and that's a pretty big assumption to be making <laughs> in inter-county football these yeah. days Dervil O'Rourke thanks so much for popping in no problem you're retired retired yeah from running not life just running. Good enough. And uh, <laughs> this is something now that you announced last Monday. How have the last sort of week and a half been for you? Um, strange because I don't think a lot of people expected it. Um, so it was a little bit crazy on the Monday and I kind of decided that I'd announce it and then be a little bit quiet. I didn't really do any press or talk about it too much. Um, so it was just a little bit mad and now it's settled down quite a lot. I think everyone's accepted it and uh, yeah, it's nice. Yeah, it's funny, we were in here and we were all very surprised about it. Uh, it's clearly something you've put a lot of thought into. Uh, how did the decision come about? Was there a particular moment? Um, I've always thought about it since I was about 24. Um, it's the type of sport that, like, everything about it is is very changeable. Like, you could get injured, anything could happen, you could have to walk at any time. And so it's never been a thought that's been that far from my mind. I've always known... And I think I had this moment where uh, so randomly on the nice road, we were coming back up from Cork and I like was talking about my training and how it was progressing. Um, It was at some stage in May 
to my husband and I was like, out of nowhere, I was like, God, there's no way I've hit the mark as I need to hit to win European Outdoors. And he was like, okay, well, I guess, you know, you just have to see how you're going to go. And I was like, "Mm." and then it was just in my head. So then I sat down with Sean and Terry and started talking to them and they would be very honest. They were like, no, you know, you haven't, like, obviously it was a long process to get back from being injured. So then I was going, well, I, I really genuinely didn't know if I wanted to be there if I couldn't run national records. So then I find it very hard to pull myself back from those thoughts. So uh, I made the decision very quickly then. There's a jump there, though, from deciding you weren't going to be able to win a major championship this summer yeah. and deciding to finish altogether. Or am I missing that? Was well, there not an option there to say, OK, look, best I'm going to do, and I know you don't go out just to compete, you need to win, but the best I'm going to do here is go out and do my best, maybe make a final, but I'll be back this European indoors next year. Yeah, I think I had to, that was the difficult part. I had to decide, was I motivated enough to come back for European Indoors? Because I had a genuine feeling I could win European Indoors next year. I still feel like if I if I cracked on, I could probably win it. But I was 100th off winning it from last year. And I just don't know, does that do it for me anymore? Like, the sacrifices and everything, you they've never been a problem for me. And it got to the point where I had to sit down and be very practical and weigh everything up. And it, it just felt like that the it just wasn't worth it. it I just kind of got to the point I was like I just don't think it's all worth it to stay in it and I didn't want to go to Rio so I always had it in my mind that I would try not to race in 2015 that I would try and walk away before that because I think it would be very tempting for me to try and keep going for Rio then because I think I would probably run the standard and then how do I not go and <laughs> well, I, why did you decide that that was never going to happen because um, I find three Olympics is enough you know it's, it's a big massive chunk of your life and all your decisions are based around it and you know after before London I knew that would be my last Olympics I, I actually if London had gone great I might have walked away then um, so everything after that was always a bonus it almost felt like I was kind of living on borrowed time while my races after that and if I had run great last summer you know ran great indoors and then I got injured outdoors I possibly would have retired after I could have, you know, for me, best case scenario was running a national record and then retiring. It wasn't, it was never kind of spending two years on the circuit hoping I could get in shape. You mentioned there, Derville, that you've, it's something you've thought about since you were 24, you said. Yeah. And I know from speaking to you in the past, you've made the point that, look, you've seen other athletes have to retire through injury a lot earlier than you're now retiring. So you're, you've been well aware of how fragile a sporting yes. career can be. Does that make it any easier now to actually deal with the decision, the fact that you're retired? Um, that the fact just that you've actually thought about this and it's been something that's in it, your head. Yeah, it probably is easier. I think I think I've found it easier than other people have found it. Maybe you know, like I was saying to you, like say David Gillick took a lot longer about the decision, whereas literally mine was in the space of weeks. It was very I'm a very decisive person, so it was easy enough for me to come to that decision. Um, yeah, I think I'm more grateful for all the good times that I've had in it. You know, I'm 33 few people make it to this age in the sport at a certain level for a certain period of time. So I'm quite appreciative for that. I have the odd tiny moment, you know, where I see people who are kind of of my generation, like internationally, not in Ireland, who are running well right now in the circuit. And I get these little inklings of, oh, you know, is it too soon? But no, I think I think I'm more in the point where I can appreciate all the good things as opposed to not. So it's okay. Or the, so you haven't fallen out of love. I know you wrote a piece yeah. in the Irish Examiner. You wrote your column about it and that's a point you made. You didn't want to get to a stage yeah. where you suddenly just didn't like it anymore. No, and I take uh, I take not running well badly. I don't enjoy that. And even when I've been injured and even when there's reasons for it, I'm not... Some people love that whole world. They love being full-time athletes, um, being on the circuit, but I kind of love performing. And 
I could go to a meet and if I don't perform, there's nothing good to me about that meet. I've, I've flown home from championships early because I haven't done well and I just haven't wanted to be there. And it might seem kind of, I don't know, petulant or something, but to me, it's not the whole point is performing. And if I'm not performing, it's just not somewhere I really can enjoy and want to be. And I would start not loving it as much as I love it now. And I do love it. And even now I'm checking the results like every couple of days I'm looking at rankings. And so I still feel quite passionate about it. And I think that's a good point to leave it on. The fact that you have left it at this point now, Mm -hmm. after coming back from having been injured, having your Achilles surgery, you made the point in the examiner piece that recognising the fact that you weren't going to be able to win this summer was actually tougher to take. I think the quote was, was far more distressing than my surgery last year, which I thought was quite striking because I would have thought, but I, th- I don't know why I thought it was striking necessarily, but can you explain why that was even a worse feeling? Well, I feel like uh, any of the physical stuff is, in terms of levels of pain and stuff, it's easy for me to deal with. But I think that actual realisation of going to Europeans and just being there to fill a lane and genuinely on that day not being good enough, it doesn't matter that I had surgery, I still wouldn't be good enough on that day. That You know, there's not going to be an asterisk next to my name or the starter is not going to give me like five metres head start because I've had a hard time. You know, everyone comes there with different types of baggage. So... For me, that feeling of not going there as a contender is terrible. Like, it's just really, it's just really depressing way to be there. And, you know, everyone gets different things in their sport. And I respect people who their ultimate goal is to make championships and to make teams. You know, everybody does it, but that's just never been me. So that, yeah, just the thought of that. Whereas the injury, it's just part of the game. And there was a process to get back from it. And there was a lot of stuff I had to go through, but it was fine. And I went through all that and... I could deal with it, whereas the actual going to a championship and not being there to perform, I just felt like, no, this is a bit distressing. I don't really want to be there for that. <laughs> that ability, Derville, that you have had to win these medals at major championships, five medals and all. We talked to David Gillick about nerves, and he said that, it was an interesting story, he said that before, I think it was his first European indoor gold, he was couldn't eat on the Wednesday. He was living with his parents. His mum was trying to get him to eat, and he wasn't eating anything. He was too nervous to eat when he got over there. I think he tried to, but just couldn't keep anything down. Ultimately went, won the race and was delighted, but thought, I can't actually continue to do this. I can't have a career where this is what my life is. So he started looking more into the mental side of things then, how to deal with those nerves. Did you have a particular moment like that? No, I never um, I never found it nerve-wracking like that, the way a lot of people do. I found it, uh, I always viewed it as an opportunity. It was never, just, ne- I mean, at times I got nervous, but really no I got excited I used to get excited leading up to championships and um, I you know I used to do this thing where I'd sit down at the start list and I'd look at every single athlete who was on it and generally I ran terrible leading into championships I'd be ranked like 24th or whatever and I'd go through all of them I'd have all the reasons why I knew I'd be better than them on the day and um, I'd just like put a line through all of them and then um, and then there'd be one or two that I'd go okay if they have their day maybe so I just always looked at I guess the positive sides of it I never I never really got, I probably only got nervous when it wasn't a championship where I had a chance to win a medal. If it was a chance, if I had a chance, I didn't really get nervous about it because I felt like I could control it. But if I was injured or other things were going on, that would make me more nervous because it's stuff I can't control. The cliche is that when you retire, when a sports person retires, this is when you reflect on these sorts of achievements. But I've noticed you've arrived in here not wearing any of your major championship medals, which is disappointing. <laughs> no. Have you been able to start Let's thinking? Let's get a about? chain made out of them like a Lord Mayor and just go around. Exactly. At least for a month or so. Yeah, but it's fair. Have you, do you, do, immediately when you retire, do you think this is what I achieved or do you reckon that would be more of a long, um, long-term thing? I, it was funny when, um, when I was, you know, writing 
my piece or whatever about it or when I was reading over the press statement, um, I, w- I was looking at it and I could see the gaps in it, the Olympic gaps were the things that jump out to me. It wasn't really the achievements. But then in, in the weeks since, I think, I guess maybe a lot of it is kind of people's people's comments and the nice things people have been saying have made me think, oh, actually, you know what? I gave it a fair lash. Like, you know, I did a bit and, you know, it actually did go really well. Whereas probably until that point, I only saw the gaps, really. There there was always another medal to be won. There was always something else to do, faster time to run. Whereas now I kind of go, okay, it was all right. One of the lines I saw um, in the statement that caught my eye is that uh, Derval also has the distinction of qualifying and competing at every major outdoor championship from 2002 to 2012. Uh, that's not the same as winning, but it's, it struck me as equally impressive in a lot of ways that you constantly, consistently got the qualifying times. You got there and by and large, you, you, you did very well there. You know, you had a couple of Olympic disappointments, but that's quite impressive. Yeah, and it's something that when I made my first team, I would never, ever have thought that that's how it would have gone, like that I would have been there for the next 10 years. So, yeah, you know, I think and that's probably something actually I'm a little bit proud of because consistency in athletics is really hard. It's really, really, really tough because people get injured. Things It's just a tough sport. And so I was at a certain level, you know, kind of a almost sub 13 second level for pretty much 10 years, um, which not a lot of people do. So, yeah, that is quite a nice, nice thing. You said that a lot of people were surprised by your decision and we said that we were. What about the people close to your friends and family when you discussed it with them? Did Was it a, was it a discussion with a lot of people or was it just, hey, everybody, I'm finishing up? Um, I didn't discuss it with very many people at all. Like, just the people that would be very close and know exactly what goes on in my athletics all the time. And everybody had a feeling that would be kind of close to me. But, you know, the, like, I had a very big conversation with Sean and Terry and that was important to have and... Um, they were probably the main people and then it was just a matter of okay well if I've made this decision what am I going to do and I could have dragged it on until September December that's what some people do Um, I guess in a funding way you know it's halfway through the year so then you know I could have dragged it but I just it just isn't me that would have felt a little bit fraudulent and also people were asking me um, about racing and stuff and I've always been very honest I struggle to just you know kind of not be honest so um, yeah, I just actually there's a few people I texted the morning of the press release because I was like, I don't want didn't want to hurt people's feelings by not telling them. Um, but at the same time, I just I just kind of wanted to put it out there in one big sweep. That's it. Draw a line in the sand and let's move on. Yeah, I'd imagine those conversations can be difficult when you've decided something in your own head and people are, prob- are probably asking you how you're getting on, how's training going, when you, you know. But I didn't spend a lot of time by the time I decided and by the time I put out the statement, so it wasn't a lot of time. Um, because as I said I'm very decisive I think the funny I finally kind of said it to my dad and uh, he was telling me that um, when he played for Highfield in rugby and he retired he felt similar and I was going like I don't know is it the same <laughs> but like that was just really that just made me laugh because he was like ah, oh, you know you never want to walk away but eventually it's time and to be fair he had he was very interesting because he was like why would you want to do it if you're not running well and not a lot of people yeah. think like that and he did straight away he was like if you're not running well why would you want to do it so you said that you um Laid, well, laid low is probably the wrong, yeah. making you sound like a recluse or something, but you haven't done a lot of interviews about it, your, your Irish Examiner piece. Why, why have you decided to do it that way? Um, just don't want I a huge amount of fuss. I just, yeah, which is funny because obviously you did a press team, so in some way I made it, but I didn't know, like it was in the middle of the World Cup, so part of me, I felt like oh, some people might pick up on it and be interested and then they won't ask me when I'm racing. 
but I didn't know so many people would pick up on it and there'd be so many people wanting me to go and talk about it and uh, I also didn't know how emotional I'd feel about it when everybody knew I thought god what if I get like start become like a crier and just constantly want to cry about it but then actually very quickly I felt absolutely fine didn't feel that emotional about it and um I'll do a couple of bits, but I just think, you know, there's other more interesting things to talk about. I don't need to be going around talking to everyone. I think it's it's very interesting. It's great to have you in. I'm just wondering what the plan is now in terms of the, the first few weeks after you retire. Does life change dramatically from being an athlete to a now recently retired athlete? Um, it changes in the sense of I'm very into being hit, fit and healthy and uh like I want to obviously dedicate like half of my day to going to the gym because that's what I've been like essentially paid to do for 10 years. So uh, there's other stuff. I've got a few other projects I'm working on. So uh, I'm kind of looking at them and I'm like, oh, well, how am I going to fit that in to go to the gym like for three hours? So that's really weird. Um, not like that's such a luxury to have in sports. People, I think, sometimes don't talk about that enough. It's such a privilege to be able. That's your job for a long time is to be fit and healthy. So um, that's funny that I can't really... Uh, totally prioritize that I think so I'm trying to kind of organize my days a bit more but I've still been getting out and doing a lot um yeah I I guess I have to really think about what I want to do because I don't exactly know what I want to do so that's a big a big thing to think about that so there's a certain amount of closure now though you can think yeah. about that now because the the competitive part I don't know knowing you Derville I don't know if the competitive part is gone <laughs> I'm sure you'll find something to be competitive in but in the sense of the athletics career such as finished so maybe that's the end of the chapter and that gives you a bit more freedom to decide right now I really have to work it out from here yeah and it, it kind of um gives my brain a little bit of space to it was very hard for me to think definitively about what I wanted to do when I was still trying to decide or I was still in the running game you know I'm very good friends with Paul Hessian and I met him last week for breakfast and he's disqualified as a doctor I was God, I'm kind of jealous you know that's such a specific career and you know he finished and he went straight and finished that when he finished his running, whereas I really have to think about it and decide. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Well, Dervil, congratulations. It's been an absolutely amazing career and we really do appreciate you coming in and chatting. So thanks so much for Thank you very much for having me. All right, that's, that's good manners. A number of players have played, but they're still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job? No, absolutely not. No, no, no. Obviously, none of their business, you know, what I was going to do. It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> we want to win football matches. There's nothing to tame, you know, some sort of animal, you know what I mean? And you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like, what, a Teresa? You know, he's, I don't know. We want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days. The hotel's been lovely. Food's been excellent. Training ground is lovely. No potholes. Uh, we've had footballs. It's been great. Bibs, everything. It's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. It was really great to have a chance to chat to Durable about all of that. It's amazing how quickly it all seemed to happen. The sudden realisation that she wasn't going to be in contention in the Europeans. She confirms that with her coaches weighs up the pros and cons of staying involved and then, right, boom, the decision is made I'm finishing up. Also, the it's amazing when you talk to different sports people about the different ways they deal with nerves. In Derville's case, she didn't really have any. Just Not just go over, win major championship medals, win world championships, where, you know, do all this and um, not get particularly nervous in doing it, which is, I guess, 
it's what almost every sports person would like to have. They would like to have that sort of mental strength. And some of them can develop it to a certain extent through working with sports psychologists and all the rest. And maybe with somebody like Daryl, it's it's just in there for whatever reason. If people could tap into that, I'm sure they'd be a long way towards achieving their own careers. But uh, we have to move on to find out what's coming up in our World Cup podcast. Yeah, you can laugh. That was the World Cup. Ken Early in Rio de Janeiro, please tell us what's coming up in the Irish Times Second Captain's World Cup podcast today. Oh, and I'm almost reluctant to spend any more time telling you what's coming up. I just want to get to it because I'm so excited about what's coming up in the uh, in the football show. Um, this uh, Latin America uh, goes into the quarterfinals with three teams who I'd say all fancy their fancy themselves as potential winners. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, their chances. I'm going to be going to France against Germany. Um, so I guess we're going to have to talk a little bit about the stodgy Europeans as well. And uh, in the meantime, there's, there's all the stuff that I um, wasn't able to talk uh, about uh, with you yesterday, Owen, because I was stuck on a bus in the middle of the countryside. Let's just stick with the World Cup for now because I've been looking forward to this all day. Here is US Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. We're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. Brian Murphy, how are you this week after the, the madness of uh, the, the big game against Belgium? Man, am I allowed to be, can I even use the word gutted? That's a word, see, that we would never use in the mm-hmm. States, but I think you're supposed to use it in Euro football to describe when things on the pitch, another word we would never use in the States, uh, but I can use it because it's football time. Uh, that's another word we use, never use in the States because it's soccer. But yes, I'm gutted about the football on the pitch. And that's as deep as I can ever go on the World Cup. I mean, it really was, uh, I mean, we've talked about it for a couple weeks, and it delivered the goods. The U.S. uh, performance was everything we thought it would be. Short on talent, short on, you know, ability to control the match, long on incredible heroism from our goalie, Tim Howard and Long on guts and heart and instinct and uh, and just ability to never give up, right down to the point where after Belgium should have scored about 11 goals and then we had the chance to still win the game when the Bay Area's own, he's from Northern California, he was our darling, he was our sweetheart guy, Chris Wondolowski, our super sub who made the team as a bit of a long shot, as a, as a striker, a poacher as they call him, missed his little 90-second minute chip shot, so everybody in the Bay Area and Northern California was so heartbroken for him because it was his only chance, and now he'll be known forever as the guy who missed it. And then even after Belgium scored twice in extra time, the U.S. scores to have it 2-1 to one with a 19-year-old kid from Germany, Julian Green. We've got to love these. We have a ton of these German kids, sons of American servicemen. We love it. And, and then almost tie it up on that set piece they ran with Clint Dempsey at the end. So it was just, I mean, people were enthralled and uh, excited, and now sifting through the wreckage of 
what does it mean, where do we go, and really just how far are we from ever really getting to that next stage. And on the consensus seems to be that despite all the emotion and all the chants and Obama chanting, I believe that we will win and all that stuff, is that we are quite a far away's way from competing with even a Belgium, much less a Brazil or an Argentina or a team like that. Yeah, but Brian, you guys got out of the group of death and you gave Belgium a hell of a game, or at least you somehow managed not to concede goals until extra time. It was you've been, I think you've been introduced to the concept that Irish sports fans have had to cling on to for many years, and that's the moral victory. You know, you might not have won on the scoreboard, but you're feeling pretty good about yourselves. I'm telling you, I'm no joke. So I'm not, you know, I don't have my PhD in Irish football. But I followed your teams pretty darn closely. I went in 1994 to watch you guys beat Italy one zip at the Meadowlands. I was there. And I'm telling you, I think there's a parallel there. I really do. Because the Irish are never the most talented team on the pitch. But they do a lot of what the U.S. does, which is they're just going to like, you know what? What we lack in talent, we're going to make up for in just all out. Just I mean, we're going to go down to the last dog dies. You know, Mm -hmm. that seemed to be Irish football to me. And that, to me, is American football. It really is. That's a, it, it's so funny to, uh, to think of those comparisons and parallels. And, yes, we are in the same boat, the moral victory. And Ireland does do that at the World Cup, right? They have those matches oh, where yeah. they, they give their all. You guys never get lose like 5-1 like Portugal did or Spain did. To, oh, I forget who crushed Spain in the opening match. It was um, Holland, yeah. Holland, 5-1, to one, thank you. But, you know, that seems to never happen to Ireland, just like it doesn't seem to happen to America, you know. And, and the moral victory, what you're left with. Now, Ireland, you know, is a different deal. You guys are coming from the, the population base that is basically, you know, half of Costa Rica, right? <laughs> so, I mean, you guys are up against a, a, a sort of a natural uh, disadvantage there of just the, the talent pool you have to choose from. Whereas America, you know, 350 million or whatever we're at, you know, you'd think we could find some footballers in there somewhere. Uh, that, that is a big discussion now of, you know, and this comes up every four years, what if LeBron James played soccer? What if Colin Kaepernick played soccer? You know, you could see Kaepernick in goal. You could see LeBron as a striker, you know. And so we're just not, you know, it, we're, we're decades from the best athletes in America choosing soccer slash football as their number one sport. Uh, you know, you don't get college scholarships playing it. You don't get big money playing it in America, whereas in America, if you're going to play football or basketball, you're going to get a college scholarship. You're going to get the big money. Or if you want to play baseball, you can sign out of high school for big money. Uh, these guys get drafted. So, you know, there's a number of reasons that we're up against. And in the meantime, it is moral victories and the continued search for that 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 diamond in the rough that I, I was told, the, that number 10 player uh, soccer fans tell me that that creative attacking midfielder that you know that can be that golden generation that can lift your team. We just don't have that. We you know we're we don't have those the, those kind of skill sets. So we have to make do with what we what we make do, which is what you guys do when you make it. It's what the Irish do. So we're in the same boat. You've just put an amazing image in my head, Brian. LeBron James playing in that World Cup. Wow. You you said a striker. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, you got to put him in, surely in the middle of midfield there, just dominating. You would know better. You would know better where he should go. So who should my striker be? A little a little water bug type guy like a. Like a, a Darren Sproles or somebody like that, oh, or yeah. a Reggie Bush. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tim Lincecum, maybe he should be up front. <laughs> well, Tim Lincecum might be the guy just on the sidelines with a beanie on his head, <laughs> smiling uh, and passing a joint around, something like that. But uh, no, Tim, actually, you know, it's funny you say that because we Giants fans here, baseball, of course, being so huge in San Francisco with all the success we've had lately with the two World Series, you know, we've, these players have become iconic, very much like the uh, – 
the 1990 Irish, 94 Irish football team, your John McGraws, your Packy Bonners, your all those guys that you guys love forever. That's what these 2010, 2012, 2014 Giants are. And so what, everything they do has a huge impact in the community. Mm-hmm. And Tim Lincecum, the, the hero of heroes who's thrown two no-hitters now, threw another no-hitter last week, and Hunter Pence, our very quirky um, but very effective and sort of charismatic right fielder, have become two of the leading U.S. men's national football team spokesmen. And they, they prominently wear their jerseys in the clubhouse, and they tweet out pictures and things like that. So they actually have sort of affected the awareness of the soccer in the World Cup because baseball fans are like, wow, well, if Lincecum and Hunter Pence are that into it, then maybe we should follow their lead. They really are being role models to young kids out there. And it's funny is that Lincecum threw a no-hitter last week, which, like I said, was such a huge deal because it was his second no-hitter. And very, you get uh, more into rarefied air when you throw multiple no-hitters. And he got doused with Gatorade after he won, uh, after he completed the no-hitter, and he, ch- he went into the locker room and changed into his U.S. men's national soccer team jersey, which uh, the, US, he had ordered, or the U.S. team sent to him. It said Lincecum on the back, and he wore that for all of his interviews that he did, and that was ESPN and nationwide co- coast-to-coast coverage of him wearing the U.S. men's national team jersey while he did all his tours. And I think the U.S. men's national team even got word of it down in Brazil, and they sent congratulations back to him uh, via their spokespeople. So it was one big kumbaya <laughs> fest. But, yeah, so there, when you say Lincecum playing soccer, it set off that whole chain of thoughts that, yeah, he is a, he's a supporter for sure. Now, he's a Seattle guy. Uh, he was born and raised in Seattle, owned, so he'd be Seattle Sounders fan. And I've heard, I've never been, but I've heard from many people that if you're looking for the best football, soccer atmosphere in America, it's the Seattle Sounders games. They apparently sell the place out 50,000, which is mind-boggling. Usually soccer crowds are, you know, 12,000, 15,000. 50,000, and apparently they do the whole European-style stuff. They march through the streets of Seattle, and they sing, and they chant, and all that stuff. So I think Lincecum comes by it honestly, being a Northwestern Northwestern boy. Yeah, the good people of Chicago added to that kumbaya feeling as well, Brian. I saw some pictures online there of um, Soldier Field, the home home field of the Chicago Bears. And it seemed fairly packed with people watching the match on big screens there. Everybody was getting into it. Yeah, Soldier Field so it became certain places that cameras got set up around the country to sort of symbolize these what they call viewing parties, you know, and, and they became kind of a popular thing. And that's why the TV ratings are interesting because whatever the TV rating is, which was high, and I saw the overnights showed that it beat the World Series rating for Games 1 and Games 2 of the last World Series, which is impressive because the Red Sox were in that World Series and they're, you know, one of the biggest TV drawing baseball team. So once again, massive ratings for the U.S. World Cup, and that's on a Thursday at 4 o'clock Eastern, or pardon me, a Tuesday at 4 o'clock Eastern, 1 o'clock Pacific. Imagine if it was on a weekend or a primetime thing. So uh, those numbers don't include those viewing parties. And you're right, there were tens of thousands of people at Soldier Field in Chicago, and that became one of the sort of the symbolic places where people gathered. Also, Kansas City, Missouri became this huge I mean, I know they have an MLS team, and I know they support them quite well, but they really became kind of the face of the U.S. fan base. They also were putting uh, at least, I don't know, 10,000 or more people in one spot watching it. So, you know, you set up these cameras, and you set them up in New York, you set them up in Chicago, you set them up in Kansas City, and you, and you get these images of these fans. And, you know, I remember four years ago when Landon Donovan beat Algeria in the last minute, you know, these viral videos start to go around, and and people were stringing together these uh, reactions from around the country 
Well, that was in 2010, and I think in 2014 it's even bigger. So, you know, I mean, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, maybe the U.S. gets to that stage where they're a top, top six, top eight team in the world. But right now I think they just have to settle for top 16. By the way, I don't know if we asked you about your experience uh, broadcasting from the pub. You were going to do that for the Portugal game. You sounded like you were a little bit terrified of what the, the football fans would be like at that hour of the morning <laughs> in the boozer. Well, the terror uh, subsided immediately, and I plunged straight in on like a swan dive. I just went right in. And again, I got back to my roots, man. Now, you know, I, you know me. I follow the Italians when they're going well. I follow the Irish. I'm a bandwagon guy all the way. <laughs> If uh, the Americans aren't doing well, we'll go see how the Irish are doing. If they're not even in the cup, we'll see how the Italians are doing. So I've done many of these pub sits before, and it's fun as heck. Now, I always rely on people who are smarter than me around me. What's always nice to know, though, is that there's usually somebody around, around you that's even dumber than you are on <laughs> soccer. And you, I can explain, no, no, that, that guy's name is Klinsman. He's our coach, Klinsman. Oh, okay, I get it, yeah. Uh, but I always try to seek out the people who know what they're talking about when they start talking about midfield tactics or strategy, and I try to soak in what they have to say. So Perry's was the name of the pub on uh, the Embarcadero uh, right here in picturesque San Francisco, and they packed the joint Oh, and they did. We our, our our show went off the air at 9 a.m., which is right when the U.S. Germany match started. They packed the joint with all the requisite groans and shouts and cheers and chants and everything. So the U.S. fans showed quite well. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the the 40 the big news here in in San Francisco, or more accurately, Santa Clara, which is 40 miles south of San Francisco, is that the 49ers' new stadium, this gleaming 1.3 billion dollar temple of technology and, and et cetera, is going to open in two weeks. And the first event they're going to have is going to be a soccer game. They're going to have uh, the, the San Jose Earthquakes and the Seattle Sounders. And they're planning, they, they've already sold 40,000 tickets for it. And they're going to cap it right there because it's Levi's Stadium's first run. And they want to make sure that the toilets mm-hmm. flush and, the, and that the concessionaires get the food out and all that. So that'll be the very first uh, event at this big stadium is football. And of course, that's uh, San Jose Earthquakes would be Chris Wondolowski's team, and I don't know how closely you guys followed it, but Wondolowski, as I said earlier, yeah. is the uh, is sort of the heartbreak, po- the poster boy of heartbreak for the U.S., and he'll be back for San Jose uh, playing at Levi's in a couple weeks. Oh yeah, I'm sure the supporters will will get behind the young man. You mentioned Klinsman there, and we know that American sport loves the cult of the coach. It's it's almost as big as uh, supporting the players. Sometimes is Klinsman. Uh, being regarded very highly now? Is he, is he being talked about in the Vince Lombardi, Bill Walsh kind of mold? <laughs> well, the big difference is, uh, like most countries, America loves winners. Maybe some would say we love them more than other countries because they're such a greedy, uh, you know, uh, we don't settle for those, uh, those applause, good effort boys. We want the wins. So Klinsman would never be placed in a Lombardi or Walsh level or Belichick or uh, Pat Riley or Greg Popovich. Until he wins. So with Klinsman, you have to sort of, everything is done with sort of air quotes around it, which is uh, he's doing a good job and we're in the right direction and he seems to know what he's doing. All the things that soccer is judged by in America as opposed to football and basketball and baseball, where if you don't win the championship, you're a bum. Uh, Klinsman is lucky enough to be in a sport where getting out of the group of death is considered a win. And, uh, and playing Belgium to the 90, to the 120th minute is considered a win. So yeah, the, the, uh, the larger answer to your question is yes. There were a few detractors, a couple uh, out there yesterday writing columns or blogs saying that they didn't like that he didn't start Kyle Beckerman. 
and he didn't like that uh, he, you know, he put in Wondolowski, who missed the chip shot, and a couple of things, maybe let Belgium attack too much or whatever. But these are things that bloggers who are kind of nitpicking, mostly he's in a honeymoon. Mostly people believe him, and they believe in him, and they believe that he's uh, taken the team uh, in the right direction, which is, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, the, when he omitted Donovan, Landon Donovan, who's the most well-known U.S. soccer player, at least until Tim Howard, who's now rocketed past him, uh, who's headed for a statue in Washington, D.C., some would say, uh, is that uh, Klinsman had a lot of young players on this team, and one of them scored, the kid from uh, Bayern Munich, who scored Julian Green, 19-year-old. Uh, Yeldon, the kid from Seattle that he put in that ran up and down mm. the pitch amazingly, is a 20-year-old. So a lot of people think, huh, Klinsman seems to know what he's doing strategy-wise, and he seems to have a roster with a lot of young talent. So, so right now he is, again, gr- given a few detractors who said, you, you know, he could have beaten Belgium the right way. Uh, most people say, no, Belgium was the better team, and Klinsman knows what he's doing. He's got this thing going in the right direction, already looking forward to 2018. We might as well give the last word, Brian, just on Tim Howard there, because we've just touched on him a couple of times. I like his post-match quotes. He was being told how great he was for saving the 19 shots or whatever it was, I think 16 saves. And uh, he said, look, that's I signed up to put my head in the way of the ball, and that's what I did, so let's not talk about me. Which is exactly what you really, I suppose, you want from... Unless you're Cristiano Ronaldo or somebody, you're probably going to speak like that. Howard's quite a popular guy in football in, in England, I think. He had a tough time in Man United, but he rebuilt his career. And I think people are quite fond of him. But talk about going from somebody not very well known in the United States, I would say, in a broader sense, to breaking the internet almost last night, a couple of nights yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen some of the, me- the funny yeah, like memes of the memes. around? Yeah. <laughs> him with those gigantic oversized hands, you know. <laughs> A lot of people were tweeting out, you know, I tried to follow Tim Howard on Twitter, but he blocked me. Ha ha, you know. So, yeah, um, instant celebrity. Uh, You know, certainly when they come back and go to the White House, he'll be the guy that Obama will focus on in his comments. Certainly when he comes back to the States, and I believe the team is headed back tonight, uh, I'm sure he's going to do the circuit. You know, Jimmy Fallon, uh, David Letterman, even one more year of Letterman before he retires. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel has risen up as a late-night guy, too, so he'll do Fallon, Kimmel, and, and Letterman, I'm certain. I heard him this morning on ESPN when I was driving in, and he not only was he a fantastic player on the uh, in his performance against Belgium, but he, as you mentioned, his post-round comments and his, char- and his charisma and character seem to be extremely likable. You tell me, does it, does it seems like goalkeepers in general seem to be like that, because I do follow... The Italy and Ireland pattern of Packy Bonner, wasn't he extremely well-regarded? And then I'll throw, I'll throw a, a Gigi Buffon at you from Italy, who's also extremely well-regarded, right? So they tend to be Captain Timber, right, don't they? They, they tend to, but the problem when you're a goalkeeper is you're only one small mistake away from oblivion, really. Packy Bonner was the hero in 1990, but then in 94 he let in a, a complete, just made a total mess of a very easy shot against Holland, and we end up losing that game. It can be... It's a difficult position in that a striker misses and usually they get a certain amount of slack unless it's really a really clear opportunity, whereas a goalkeeper makes a mistake and, you know, it's a goal. Yeah, true story. You're right about that. And not, that not that you don't remember Packy missing that thing 20 years later, huh? Oh, of course not. That? No, it doesn't hurt at all anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, well, you know, it's funny about that. Uh, we, had a, we had a great local soccer columnist in San Francisco named Alan Black. He's from Glasgow, Scotland, so he mesmerized us with his Glaswegian brogue on the air, and he was talking about the Wondolowski myth, and he was telling us, you know, for Americans who don't follow it as closely, he said in many ways it's part, 
he says in many ways the, the 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 legendary myth is part of the mythology of the game you know part of what makes it so dramatic and so compelling you know maybe and maybe that's what you're thinking about with Bonner you know 20 years later you still remember these things and that's what makes the game so Unlike maybe American football is such a, a weirdly complex game with 11 guys on 11 guys on every play. Somebody's blocking somebody. You're not quite sure who made the key block. Whereas, uh, you know, European and, and South American football, world football, as it were, is so easy to see with your eyes. Now, of course, there's tactics going on that Klinsman and everybody is, are doing. But more importantly, you can trust your eyes. You can see that Wondolowski missed. You can see that Bonner missed, you know. So yeah. it is incredible. And then he, what's incredible about Howard is ultimately he did let in, too. He let in, too, and, he, and yet he was still feted as a hero and uh, easily the poster boy of that stereotype I always love to dust out for you, the gritty American underdog. Oh, and that's the, the only time we can do it. We're back to being the fat, oppressive, imperialist, Yankee pigs now. Now that the soccer's over, we can't wear that little, uh, that little, little train that could uh, emblem anymore on us. Uh, <laughs> Tim Howard was our last... Our last blast of being the heartwarming underdog. Now we can go back to being gluttons. Brian, it's been absolutely superb. And you've already put an idea in my head for a future chat. We're going to have to talk about late-night TV uh, talk show hosts over there. Nothing really to do with sport, but we're going back to Johnny Carson. We're going all the way back Sunday. Oh, Jack Powers. Let's do that. Let's leave that for another day. Listen, it's been great <laughs> to talk to you today. Thanks so much. Look forward to it, Owen. All the best. Karen, do you share my enthusiasm for LeBron James in the centre of midfield I just think you've got to get him in th- if you've got a whatever height he is six, six foot eight but a six foot eight very broad shouldered very muscular man with huge, with a lot of pace in your team you've got to get him into midfield mm. okay I don't know what his feet are like right now not great I'd imagine he'd need a bit of training up hmm. I would say you know that role that Yaya Toure plays for City kind of quite an advanced central midfielder uh, with license to maraud for maraud on oh, maraud forward, that's where I'd see LeBron James. Maybe the centre in the three in a four-two-three-one formation. Basically, basically a number ten. I mean, I'm giving him a lot of yeah. a lot of scope there. But the the idea would be that he drop back towards the centre circle and run from there. <laughs> Dave Hannigan wrote uh, his first America at Large column in the Irish Times today, and just in terms of uh, the context was how. American football, soccer, football in America will be built on from here. The point he raises, I hadn't realised it was anything like to this extent, how much financial pressure there is on parents trying to get their kids to play football in America. It's huge. Apparently, uh, Clint Dempsey and one of the other players, I can't remember which of the other players, uh, haven't got the name right in front of me here, but a couple of them were priced out of it essentially when they were younger. They came from less affluent families and it was only through the generosity of teammates, parents who were willing to pay a little bit because they obviously saw these guys were talented. Mm. That actually got them through the initial stage. It's hugely expensive to get involved in. Stupid money for like ridiculous things. The idea that you have to pay loads and loads of money to get your kid into a camp to be coached by probably some professional who's come over from mm. Europe. It's, it's, it seems ludicrous, to be honest. And it's the only... It, this is the, the whole point about football as a sport is... It's it's not expensive, relative relatively you not just expensive. Need a ball, yeah. So and somehow they're managing to make it <laughs> to, yeah. to to draw the magic out of it over there. So maybe they'll have to sort that side of it out over the next number of years. But we are joined now by former Kerry midfielder Mihal Quirk to talk about the Munster football final. I'm really looking forward to this one, Mihal. Interesting teams named by Cork and Kerry. It's the last one ever at the. We'll, we'll now call it the old Porky Queeve. Are you buying into the nostalgia? I mean, it, it would really for for a pitch for a for a ground for a 
dressing rooms for everything it's it's a horrible venue for players and supporters uh, like for for players I don't know if you've ever been down around the, the bowels of it but like the dressing rooms are more suited to an under eight team than, than senior in the county stuff you've got two tiny little shoe boxes where where you have to try and pack about 30 men and physios and management teams and gear and, and it's 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 claustrophobic inside. I know maybe that's just your way dressing rooms but that, that was always the way we found it but um, I, I'm sure that's not going to have much of an impact on, on, on Cork I mean Cork are going to want to win the game because it's a new team but um, you know what I think I think the supporters and players alike will be pretty happy to see the back of, of, of the old Park Equive you know maybe the home dressing rooms were done up years ago and they're <laughs> the, whole the, yeah. the, whole, the whole lot does, does it make any difference does it change the uh, I, I don't know any of the dynamics for the Kerry team it's a very different Kerry team now anyway so I suppose it's a new side maybe the younger players mightn't care one way or the other but does the venue have it is, are you looking at this game any differently now that it's in Porky Cueve compared to if it was in Killarney well the, the fact that we've got so many kind of new guys so many young guys like it, Porky Cueve has, has been an intimidating venue for for you know Kerry teams that were, were at their strongest back in you know back in the last in the last decade and you know, I, I think it will have some effect on on the Kerry team, just because it's the the whole thing is very it's very strange the, the way it's set up down there. I mean, even the, the dress rooms you have to come across you have to come across the tunnel and mix with the supporters on your way out to the field for the warm up, coming back in from the warm up, going back out for a game. I remember one game a couple of years ago, we we, we were inside in the dress rooms and bursting out to start the game, and our goalkeeper Darren Murphy, a selector at the moment. Uh, he was about two or three guys ahead of me and, and uh, sprinting across the concrete to get out in the field and, and, and lifting his, his, his feet are up over his head. Absolutely took a tumble that you wouldn't want to see in, in Formula One racing. And just, you know, we were laughing at him going out in the field before him once the final because it's just the supporters are held back and you're running trying to get through the concrete. And the whole thing is a, is a nightmare logistically to get out onto the field and stuff. But I, I think when you get out there, the surface is, is excellent. It's always been really, really good. But there is a, there is a kind of a claustrophobic atmosphere in Park Aquive that, that does lend itself to, to a bit of tension on the field and you know younger guys I don't know really how they're going to react to that hopefully you know they'll be young enough that they won't really care about it it's more when you get older you start to worry about these things but uh, I, you know hopefully I, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact on them you know When you look at the quality of player though Dunica Walsh James O'Donoghue back in Aidan O'Mahony it's not as though Kerry have suddenly gone from being a team of superstars to a team of also rounds there's a lot of quality in there how confident would you be in the team selected? Yeah, it's it's a, the team kind of caught us by surprise a little bit down here because we weren't, you know, as you know, you know, it's the training sessions are, are we're locked up to the training sessions, so we can't get a feel of, of of how guys are going or whatever. So the team kind of probably took guys from you know by surprise a little bit. The problem is the likes of James. I don't know who's had an AC injury with his shoulder. He's been out, so we don't know what kind of form he's in. He, you know, he's played about ten minutes of football in a in a trial game recently last Saturday, and Donica Welsh is only coming back from injury and. You know, I, I, I look at these guys and I think of, I, I, I'd be a big basketball fan. And I, I look at, you know, like, like missing Gooch is, is, is having such a huge impact on all of these guys. It was like, you know, you look at, I don't know if you guys, you know, are familiar mm-hmm. with the basketball, but Jordan, you look at Jordan when Jordan left the Bulls. You know, Scotty Pippen was the man. He was, he was, when Jordan left and went off to play baseball, Pippen was the guy. You know, he couldn't get the Bulls out of the first round of the playoffs because he was now being checked by the best defender on every team and he wasn't getting those same open looks that you would get when Jordan was on pitch. And it's the same with Gooch and Kerry. When Gooch is on the field, he's getting double teamed. He's hitting guys with passes, you know, when they're open before they even know they're open. And now suddenly, 
you know, these guys have to win their own ball, they have to go and create their own space, they have to get open themselves, and they're finding that a little bit more difficult because they're starting to appreciate now really what we're missing without Gooch, and I think without Cullum, it just makes everybody, everybody is just, you know, finding that, that whole little bit tougher, you know? And is James O'Donoghue the Scotty Pippen in this particular analogy because well, he had a well, huge well, year know, last year? If Gooch, if Gooch is if Gooch is Michael, then then James would be Scotty at the moment because he's he's you know he's playing at a really really high level like he has been you know all last year. But right now he's stepping into those you know those boots without 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 Gooch. He's going to be have to be the guy that that's going to create and and's going to be unselfish and help everybody else out. But I just don't know now physically if he's if he's sharp enough after being out for four or five weeks with a shoulder injury. I don't know if he's going to be sharp. Enough to, you know, to to take on that mantle. You're hardly going to tip against your own county, Michal, are you? Who's going to win? Well, you know what? I I, I write a. a, a a column here for a local paper and, and I did actually I went with Cork and, and since I wrote it now I'm, I'm kind of doubting <laughs> myself again I, I, I'm i not sure it's just you know it's like both teams are suffering from an identity crisis you you know even Cork you don't know Cork haven't selected Colm O'Neill and if Paddy Kelly who was playing at centre back now a wing forward so you you just don't really know what to expect from, from either side you know I I think if, if James O'Donoghue is, is sharper than he you know than he should be uh, I think Kerry have a great chance but I, I still think that that Cork probably, you know, probably sneaked this one for the last time in, in Park Grieve. Miguel Quirk, enjoy the game. Thank you. No bother. i got to be honest, Murph, I breathed a sigh of relief there when Michal was t- about to test our basketball knowledge. <laughs> I was thinking, oh, who's he going to name? What obscure players are you going to compare somebody Steve to here? Nash. <laughs> yeah. Then we got um, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. I've heard I, of that guy. Definitely. He's, you know, I hear he's he was really, really top class, really the old nice, basketball. Yeah. So... That's uh, that's good to hear. Uh, Porky Queef, we've been talking about it, and Michal was yep. talking about it there, and Keith Duggan is writing about it uh, this Saturday in the Irish Times. They've got two Munster finals coming up. Okay. So you should uh, keep an eye out for that on Saturday. Yeah, that sounds good. Now, um, oh, we should probably mention Wimbledon before we finish up, by the way. We haven't talked about it very much. It's been overshadowed by the World Cup. But Andy Murray is out amidst alleged arguments off the court between somebody in his camp a few minutes before going out on court he's a very angry man he's extremely angry very for uh, right right from the moment he walked out in court and then I think it was like halfway through the third set yeah. he's muttering well muttering extremely loudly for everyone on centre court to hear five effing minutes before the effing match starts <laughs> and looking up towards the, <laughs> the players box wow. so it turns out he's had a row with either his coach his mother or his girlfriend and uh yeah, we're not entirely sure which or one. Or all three. Or, well, I hope they didn't all gang up on poor Andy. Yeah. I've got a couple of things I want to get off our... Ch- we've, we all we all want to get off our chest here, Andy. Yeah, Rafael Nadal, of course, booted out the other day as well in fairly spectacular circumstances. That was around the time Messi was setting up uh, Di Maria for his goal. I think that was during the Argentina... Uh, during extra time of the Argentina... Switzerland uh, game. Switzerland yeah. game, yeah. We're going to wrap things up there. Loads more World Cup talk later on with Ken. We'll look ahead to Brazil against Colombia and the rest of the quarterfinals. That, they're all on tomorrow. Pretty it's exciting. Amazing. You games. can email us at secondcaptainsatirishtimes.com if you've anything to say. I'm sure Murph will put another P. Bezo out next week. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can follow oh, us yeah. on Twitter at secondcaptains. You can Facebook uh, check us out on facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening to this show and we'll chat to you later on. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.